how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Jessica Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade, from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools, and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont and serves as a prevention and recovery coach at Sana at Stowe, a medical detox and recovery center in Stowe, Vermont. She is an award-winning journalist and co-hosts the Hashtag Am Writing podcast with best-selling authors KJ Dallantonia and Serena Bowen and lives in Vermont with her husband, two sons, and a lot of dogs. This episode is just yours truly, Louisa, and our incredible guest, as both Lily and Rose had unfortunate last-minute emergencies, everyone's okay, But it was nonetheless a fantastic conversation with a person who is so smart, funny, charming, and bright in every sense. I have to admit I was pretty anxious going in, as Jessica is so impressive, and I've heard her on several of my own favorite podcasts. But her warmth and openness made this one of my favorite episodes to date. I hope you enjoy it as much as I love talking to Jessica Leahy. If you're a fan, check out her books. The Addiction Inoculation is out now. And an awesome podcast, hashtag amwriting. Uh, we hope you dig it. <laughs> so nice to see you today. It is so lovely to see you. Sorry. No, 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 not at all. And like, um, normally it would actually be three of us interviewing you, <laughs> but everybody had a family emergency. Like, <laughs> so oh, no. I know, but we were so excited to talk to you. And we know that your schedule is filled with writing. So we, it's just you and me, baby. <laughs> I'm so excited though. It's so lovely to finally meet you. Actually, your publicist reached out to me about a year ago. Um, and I can't remember specifically what the whole why and what it was about because I get a lot of publicist emails. So I actually knew of you before you reached out to me because your publicist had reached out to me about a year ago. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Shout out, Gary yeah. Tolls. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, thank you so much again for joining us on Sober Sex and just wanted to double check that your pronouns are she and her. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Same, same. And how are you today? I am great. It's a beautiful day in Vermont. I'm in, I'm in Northern Vermont. So from here, I'm about a little less than an hour from the Canadian border. Um, but to, at the day we're recording today, my, uh, my parents down in Massachusetts are getting slammed by a massive storm. So I'm, you know, constantly checking for text updates. Is the house still standing? Are you still there? So anyway, uh, no. but it's just, it's beautiful here looking out over the woods of Vermont. No, that's it's actually very adorable. I know that this is clearly a audio medium, so no one can see. But like, you have a little scarf on, and your your headphones are white, so they look like earmuffs. <laughs> it's very charming. Yeah, we keep the house a little bit chilly. In fact, I posted a picture to Instagram the other day. My small, I have three dogs, and my smallest dog, a puppy, 
had gone into the, my bathroom and had rested his little head on the heating element in the bathroom so that he could get some heat because our house tends to be a little on the chilly side. You're like, is this a sign that we have to turn it up? Because you are wearing a fur coat, sir. Yeah, my, my mom is actually also, my, both my parents are in New York, but my mom is like sending pictures of her puppy in the snow and it's very charming. But I'm just like, you know, like Paris is uh, in, balmy in comparison. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do not recommend, by the way, trying to house train a puppy when the average temperatures have been below zero. Oh uh, the puppy does not want to go outside and do the stuff outside when it is below zero. So yeah, <laughs> pick a warmer month to get a puppy. Just some, you know. Yes, advice. I support that advice. <laughs> if only for your own sake, so you don't have to like stand exactly. in the freezing cold and be like, okay, okay, business. <laughs> okay, business. <laughs> the dog is like, no, no. <laughs> No, thank you. Um, and so how have the last couple of years in Corona been for you? Because like it used to, this question is kind of our, our warm up jam. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been extended. It's like, how have the months, how have the year, how have the 18 yeah. months? And now we're at the two year mark almost. <laughs> My experience with coronavirus, it has, I think is unique ish in that I'm married to an epidemiologist and an infectious diseases physician oh. who does a lot of media around coronavirus and helping people understand what's going on. So I either have too much information or, you know, which can, you know, having a lot of information can be great. Having too much information can just get a little much. Yeah, um, and we've had blowback against my husband. I, about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, some anti-vax people, um, posted posters around town that said my husband is Tim, um, Dr. Tim Leahy paid liar. And I had to go around wow. and take those posters down. Yeah, it was, it was, it's been fun. It's been really interesting. Oh my God. That sounds yeah. like such, I mean, <laughs> it's a weird time, but it's also been really amazing to, um, watch, my husband be a really, you know, see patients, be an active frontline worker and get in there and feel like he's actually doing something to help. So that's been really great because I think otherwise there's this tendency when you're so closed off from the rest of the world, because we really strictly adhere to, you know, COVID guidelines to feel isolated and to feel like helpless and like you're not doing anything. So yeah. the fact that he's able to be out there and be proactive has, I think has been good for all of us. I'm sure, like, do you have any um, kind of boundaries around, or like, information embargoes? Like, any boundaries around when, like, how much you can take in terms of, like, knowing about what's going on before you feel overwhelmed? Or are you just like, this is my life, this is my partner, we are in? <laughs> no, I, and in fact, it's been really, we have such a cool marriage in that I think given another another life, you know, being a physician is one of the paths I might've taken and definitely, and he's also a writer. So, and, and does a lot of speaking. So, you know, I think there's a lot of crossover in our interests. And so I get to sort of vicariously live that life. So really the only embargo on information is the really disgusting parasite conversations around <laughs> mealtimes. Those are the only ones that we try to limit a little bit, uh, but my children don't seem to care that much. So anyway, no, it's, it's really fun. I think both of us like to get the data dump on our respective professions. It's really fun. No, I mean, that's, that's awesome that you, though, that you can kind of support each other and stay really curious within each other's work. Um, yeah, it's been great. And like, I know that you obviously deal with kids and are an educator and a writer, like, and a mom. So how have you seen the kind of the kids around you deal with these times? 
So for my kids, it, we're, we've been in a fairly lucky uh, position. My um, oldest kid is just graduating a week from today on Saturday. Um, <laughs> thanks from college. And he went to a small university that's been really able to create a nice bubble. It's in rural Vermont. So, um, and the, the communication between the school and home has been great. So I, I've felt really, I've felt safe with him being there and he's felt safe there. And that's been really great. And then my younger kid, uh, their school had uh, a had a hybrid model, but not like teachers having to do remote and teach in the classroom at the same time. It was half the kids went to school on Monday, Tuesday, the other half went, or Monday, Wednesday, the other half went on Tuesday, Thursday, or whatever. And then on a certain day of the week, it was, it was hybrid. It was online for everyone. So you got, they got to have some of that social time, and, yeah. but they also were in school half as much and it didn't, and you know, to keep the numbers in the classroom down. So that was really lovely. And, but at the same time, it's really hard to hear your kids say things like, you know, seeing their teachers struggle and acknowledging that their teachers are just at their wits end. And that, uh, cause I said at one point, I said, what's been the hardest part of this for you to my younger son? And they said, um, seeing our teachers so upset and so frustrated mm. and so stressed. I think he used the word stressed. So anyway, that's been really, um, and for me, I've tried very hard not to speak to the teaching experience during COVID because I haven't been in the classroom during COVID, but I can only imagine knowing what I know about normal times, yeah. what it's like for them now. So just all the shout outs, all the love and respect to the teachers. No, totally. And I think that like, it seems like you have a lot of information on kind of how to support, you know, as you did literally write a book on it, <laughs> like desirable <laughs> difficulty. And it's like, oh, so mm -hmm. what are some of the tools that we can kind of cultivate within not only our kids, but ourselves when we're kind of hitting that edge of like, this is no longer cute. This is very challenging. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, I, I think again, like, you know, we're, we're both people in recovery and this idea of like, there's a lot of desirable difficulty that kind of comes up just as, as somebody trying to kind of stay sober and work an active program of recovery. Yeah, there's a lot of, for me, one of the most important things I think I do as both a writer and an educator, and I guess as a parent, is this idea of reframing. So um, I, in my most recent book, The Addiction Inoculation, I was talking to, um, to, I was interviewing someone and I was talking about the fact that we moved my kid in between middle school and high school, a really dangerous transition period for kids in terms of initiating drug and alcohol use. Um, we moved him away from his friends, away from the parents of those friends that I really trusted. So we added, we heaped all this risk. Um, we didn't mean to do it. It was just, we were moving and we sort of had to do it. Um, and I mentioned it to the person I was interviewing who happened to be Dr. Dan Siegel, who's um, amazing and incredible and his work with adolescents is, is just amazing. And he said, well, Jess, you know, you could stress out over what you're perceiving as all that risk, or you could reframe it knowing what you know about the adolescent brain and say, well, these are all opportunities for novelty and opportunities for directing kids toward positive risk because the adolescent brain craves novelty and a move. I mean, what could be better than a move? So a <laughs> lot of what I, a lot of what I try to do is reframe, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that has sucked over the past couple of years. And part of my job as a parent is to, without being a crazy Pollyanna, like, oh no, it's all wonderful and perfect, but to reframe some of those experiences as opportunities or reframe, you know, my sons got five months together that they wouldn't have had 
um, if one of them hadn't had to come home from college early the first semester that everything sort of shut down. And that was an incredible bonding time. And I think they have a relationship they wouldn't have had if they hadn't been stuck in the house together 24-7. So doing that reframing, I think, even during normal times is one of the most important things we do. And with sobriety, getting back to why I actually brought this up, I was just talking to someone, a client at the rehab where I work, about reframing experiences in order to make them more the easier to, to bear. I said, for me, not drinking has removed so much stress from my life because I'm not having to spend all that mental energy about around how much can I drink? Should I drink? How much has to be here for me to feel safe? How do I get these people to not notice how much I'm drinking? How do, what am I going to say to my husband? What if I don't remember this conversation? Should I write something down so that in the morning <laughs> if something breaks? You know, all that mental energy now, I don't have to do that. And, you know, when I got in a car accident a while back, my first thought was not, you know, shit, someone's going to think that I was drinking during this and they're going to say, did anyone take her blood alcohol level? Instead, my thought was, well, man, I've had a car accident. That sucks. But it, the alcohol not being a part of my life anymore has removed so much emotional stress and emotional and, and just cognitive load. So much of that is gone because I'm able to just sort of forget things because I'm a dit sometimes. Because frankly, I wasn't paying attention and I'm going to work on that, but it didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was drunk. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think what a, what a beautiful thing to be working, you know, with people who are newly sober and in, in a recovery yeah. uh, treatment center, just cause like it, you know, although I take people through the, the 12 steps and it, it's so easy to like kind of forget what really what it was like and like how much mental energy and was just spent yeah. like trying to kind of keep up an illusion of having my shit together in any way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's why the, one of the other reasons I like uh, beginner meetings so much. And I think this is also tied to my being a teacher. I love watching, especially young people have that like aha moment where two things come together and they're like, oh, that's what that is, or that's what that means, or that's why I did that. So going to beginner meetings not only keeps me humble in my sobriety, it also, I just get so much hope and so much energy from people who are new in sobriety. And yeah, it can be really frustrating because there are all these people talking about how, you know, I'm going to do it my way and I've got this and I don't need your blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'll figure it out. But, well, it's just, I was actually just talking to a client about this. Um, one of the reasons I like going to women's meetings, especially where there are a lot of women who have been there for a long time or sitting there doing their knitting and, you know, some newbie in the background, in the back will say something really arrogant and not humble and all that sort of stuff and lying to herself. And the people, they'll just, the older women in, in recovery will just sit there and knit and say, eh, she'll figure it out. No point in saying it right now. It'll, it'll, she'll realize it. And that sort of Zen approach to um, letting other people say those things and not letting it get me all worked up has mm. been a real gift of going to, to meetings anyway for me. I love, I love my women's meetings. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's this, there is a kind of divine, it's, it's funny because I think especially kind of with the pandemic, I'm most, almost exclusively going to, to women's meetings. And I'm having a lot of experience where there's this almost like a primitive, premonition factor of like being able mm -hmm. to kind of catch a glimpse of like, who someone is turning into before that yeah. they're even aware of like that it's possible 
And it's yeah. such a beautiful, like, I don't know where I'm, where else in my life I can, can have the opportunity to, to bear witness as such. Yeah. You know? The other <laughs> thing that's been, the, the other thing that's been magical to me about meetings is um, in, so my very first meeting, I went to, um, I went to a meeting that was pretty far away from my house because I lived in a very small town and I was a teacher. I was a middle school teacher. And it was just so scary. I needed to be in a place where maybe no one would know who I was, yeah. um, which set me up because I loved that meeting so much. I ended up having to <laughs> do this Huge. long drive to get to my, <laughs> yeah, that became my home group and I just loved it so much. But the thing that floored me about that meeting, I chose it because it would be big and there, it would be really diverse. I mean, not in terms of Vermont diverse, which means people of lots of ages. They're just, it's, we live in a very, Vermont's incredibly, um, homogenous, but it was diverse in terms of who was there and the experiences of the people that I met there. So there would be like these biker guys all in leathers and they would be standing up there. It was a double speaker meeting. So two different stories, which is just my favorite. And they'd be standing up there at the podium talking about humility and being honest with themselves and, and gratitude. And, you know, someone who I might have crossed the street to avoid is standing there saying the most profound, emotionally intelligent things. And it's completely upended my expectations about people. It's, it's been an incredible gift to see people talking about real stuff, not the crap that we just chitter chatter about when we're just sort of out at a, a social gathering, but people talking about real stuff and people I wouldn't expect to get to see the depths of. It's been great. Um, I mean, it sounds like the thing, you know, like the, the, the nugget of gold that we keep <laughs> like literally keep coming yeah. back for. And it's funny because like the next kind of question on the list of questions before me, which are hilariously all stated as we questions, <laughs> like, <laughs> because there's supposed to be two more of us here, but um, it's very much kind of about the, you know, talking about the gift of failure and how it helped and how we can help kind of cultivate it in, as parents. And I'm not a parent, <laughs> the co-hosts are, <laughs> but this, this idea of, you know, like, where more clearly can we see like the gift of failure, but in recovery, ah, because yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like at ground zero of total yeah. failure. Well, and the thing I tend to talk about a lot with writers, especially in terms of gift of failure is the book itself was an incredible gift of failure for me. I couldn't have scripted it any better in the sense that it was my first book. I had been a journalist writing in like 1200 word stretches and suddenly I'm writing a 75,000 word book. And I sucked at it. My first version was so bad that my very amazing, you know, respected, um, I was a little scared of her editor at this massive publishing house was like, yeah, this is not publishable in this form. It was really frightening. And I just had a head injury. I'd been thrown by a horse and I'd had a, a really nasty head injury. Oh, you're and also that, a writer. The story. Yeah. <laughs> so many things to talk was, about. Hooray. <laughs> and I, we were, what we would do is that one of my closest friends has a, a barn, uh, like an indoor riding ring and, and a big barn. And we would, these horses, we'd get sort of from auction and then train them and resell them. And uh, I got thrown. Anyway, on my head. Um, so all of that stuff went down right after I got sober. And I remember thinking between the post-concussion syndrome of like depression and not being able to read a lot, not being able to use the computer, 
um, not being able to write, uh, that was really difficult. And the depression was really difficult. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, if I had not gotten sober before this, I would have no tools. My only tool would have been to, you know, to drink through it. And I was so grateful and ditto with COVID. I mean, you know, I talked to a lot of the people I'm seeing at the rehab where I work now are, yeah, it just started to really ramp up during COVID. Yeah. That was my coping mechanism. So for those two periods in my life, I'm at eight and a half years now. My For those two periods in my life, I'm just really grateful that I went into them sober because those I could have really crashed and burned during those periods. No, totally. And I mean, again, like this idea of like, the whole, the whole thing is the promise of resilience, you know, that like yeah. throughout it, it, it weaves in this language, like, cause I had this assumption that like, basically I would get sober, be God's favorite, <laughs> like, yeah, have yeah. daily parades, <laughs> like yeah. a chip every month until I die. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and what happens is there, there's like, actually in light of the certain trials and low spots ahead, we have a way of living that works in rough going. This kind of like language is about, you know, surviving difficulty, not about mm. <laughs> the, the parades yeah. that we'll get. And it's, I think it's beautiful that you were able to kind of take, or I'm, maybe this is me reading into it, but that you were able to take those, those messages and actually apply them to, you know, like parenting and teaching and be like, oh, that like, because I'm not sure, you know, how much that's kind of cultivated within our culture, which is so kind of adamant about success, you know? Yeah, I think there's two things. I mean, I, I tend to really despise sort of cliches and empty platitudes. So some of the 12-step language rubs me the wrong way sometimes. But life on life's terms, you know, living life on life's terms has been one that I've always really liked because, you know, we talk a lot about the fact that we need to prepare these children for the world because we can't prepare the world for our children mm -hmm. um, in any practical way. But the problem is, is that when we don't do that, when we don't, when we make things so easy for our kids, when we take away consequences and specifically around, you know, especially if kids are going to start initiating use of drugs and alcohol, and then suddenly you have parents who are like, well, you know, don't do this again, but you can stay home today because you're hungover, blah, 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 blah. You remove those consequences and you make the world easier for the children. Then there's you. there are these incredible learning opportunities that we miss. So I think, you know, and as a teacher, that's why I wrote the book. I was so frustrated by seeing all of these learning opportunities go up in smoke because a parent would rescue them from the consequences of their actions and their choices. Uh, but now for my own life, for my own parenting, for my, you know, whether that's teaching or speaking or whatever, it's really been a wonderful perspective shift to say, wait, is this a lesson or is this just something I need to clear away to make life easier? Mm. And it's not easy <laughs> for me. Like I, I'm constantly have to remind myself not to step in. I mean, my younger kid just went through college admissions stuff and, and difficult semesters with difficult classes and, you know, I just want to fix it. I just want to fix it all. I don't like seeing my children uncomfortable. I don't like seeing them frustrated or feeling stupid, but learning opportunities. Indeed. And I mean, I, I, and I'm sure you get, you know, like this is your metier, but like, I remember conversations before I even started using with my mom where she was like, your entire family is made of alcoholics. Can you please <laughs> Like, can you please be aware of this as you go about your life? Yeah. She was concerned. And I had the opposite, which was, <laughs> we do not talk about this at all. But like, this is a, this is a verboten subject. Um, and I go into this in, I, you know, in my, in the addiction inoculation, it's part memoir at the beginning. And 
that was hard too, because then you're stuck as Susan Cheever uh, talks about in her work with this elephant in the room that no one is allowed to name. And yet it's stomping all over your life and it's kicking things around and, and it's just there blocking everyone's view. Um, but nope, can't talk about that. So I, I mean, and I think that what you're talking about is a really big part of the takeaways from the addiction inoculation, which is talk early, talk often. And especially if you have if you're, you know, passing down that genetic legacy of substance use disorder, um, not just don't do this, don't do that. Here is something to watch out for. But here's what it looks like when use turns into abuse. Like if mm. you start using and you're really looking forward to it, or you're using it in order to cope with your emotions, or using it in order to cope with your psychic pain, there's moments, you know, I don't have the luxury of not talking about it. It's just, it's, you know. I want this to end with my generation and not pass that on. So we'll see. I mean, there are no guarantees, but man, we talk about it a lot. No, <laughs> a lot. Awesome, though, Cause again, like I think that I, 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 I wish my, my fellow hosts were here because they're both in relationships with fellow alcoholics who are in recovery. Mm -hmm. And this idea of, you know, like when, what one might deem a dead end gene pool in terms of like, <laughs> all of the alcoholic genes. Um, but being able to have like a language to kind of, if not ward against it, at least present a life in recovery that it's like, you know, mm -hmm. if it gets out of hand and if you feel like your ability to control and enjoy whatever you're controlling and mm -hmm. enjoying is starting to slip, like it, it ain't so bad, kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing that we had, um, we had a relative who had a relapse over the holidays and it blew up the holidays. Like everyone had to leave or go stay at a hotel. I mean, it was really bad. And we talked about that very openly. And my, one of the relatives that had to be spoken to about it was, I think she was like, I don't know, like six at the time. But oh. these were really important conversations to have. It's like, this is why we're leaving because this relative is acting in this way and it is not safe emotionally, physically for us to be there. And this is a line we have for our family and it is my job as your mom to keep you safe. And to sh and so showing them that and saying, here, look, this is what can happen when alcohol takes over a person's life. Um, that reflection I think is really important to see. And when we just sort of brush it under the rug and don't talk about it, there's, you know, there, there's nothing to look at. And, you know, we know scared straight doesn't work, but there's nothing to look at as an example of the negative consequences that can come down the pike if you choose use over your family so yeah yeah talk yeah. talk 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 we love that and so like in addition kind of pivoting into the like now about sex part of our conversation yeah, 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 yeah. um like how do you feel like recovery has changed those relationships because you say eight and a half years and then you kind of mention a, a kid in college and a kid kind of mm -hmm. finishing up high school like how do you feel like your those relationships and the relationship with your partner has changed since your recovery. Yeah. So my kids were uh, nine and 14-ish, and we were very open with them from the beginning. In fact, even before that, we had been open with the fact that it's in our family and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the youngest claims he has no memory. The oldest claims he has no memory of me being intoxicated in front of him. I was also really extraordinary at hiding it, you know, as a lot of us tend to be. You don't think so, but like, yeah. it sounds like you actually were. Yeah, but a lot of things got in the way of my relationship with them, like not being able to remember conversations from the night before and 
having to play that, um, to do that sort of dance where you stay away from topics that you think you might not have heard from the night before, like don't ask any questions about something because mm -hmm. then they'll look at you and know that you're not remembering a whole conversation. So that put a big wall between me and my kids, right? Because I'm not even hearing them or I'm hearing them, but it's not getting stored in my memory. Yeah. Um, so that being honest with them, plus they are very um, aware of what my work is and how I do it. And they go to events with me and they know the level of honesty that I operate within. They know that, you know, I'm on a very public national stage and I talk a lot about the screw ups, my screw ups and what's gone on in our lives. So I think that's been, you know, banishing secrets, I think has been a really important part of raising them. And, and they've seen that we tend to live, you know, we don't share everything, but I do tend to, uh, to talk a lot about what's gone on. And then in terms of um, my marriage, number one, you have to understand early on in our relationship, my husband and I have been together for all, at least dating for almost 30 years. So I'm 52. We got together. We first met when I was 22. So 28 years wow. is how long we've been together together. And uh, we both knew that we both came from families where there's a lot of substance use. And we both knew that we did not want to raise our kids with that. And I, it had been explained as clearly as I will not raise my children in a home being torn apart by substance use. So we kept a very close eye on each other, but I, again, super sneaky. Um, so I, there was a lot of lying and there was a lot of hiding and a lot of obfuscating and a lot of, you know, I had to be the one to do the recycling because he couldn't do the recycling because then he'd see what was in the recycling, mm -hmm. all that sort of, all that sort of stuff, even if he didn't know it was happening, was it was creating a, another wall um, in our relationship, yeah. and and that's that really. I got very lucky in that I got sober before everything blew up. I was I'm one of those people in recovery who has a lot of not yets. Like mm -hmm. I hadn't been arrested yet. I hadn't lost my marriage yet. I hadn't, you know, that sort of stuff hadn't happened yet, but it was right. It was right around the corner. And if I had kept drinking, um, my husband would have left me and rightly so he would have kept our children safe, which was, you know, the most important part of what we do when we become parents. And I, I'm just so glad I avoided that, but it, it was not good. And the other thing is that when I, when I finally admitted I needed help, he didn't know even a sliver of the story. So some stuff he found out when I started going to meetings and I wanted him to just be relieved that I had admitted it and was using the word alcoholic. Yeah. In, and like, it's sort of like, I describe it this way. You know how if you get into a fender bender in the morning and you don't tell your partner and you've had all day to get used to the fact that you've been in a fender bender. And by the end of the day, it's like no big deal. You're used to that idea. Right. But when you tell them it's news, it's new to <laughs> the them. Is novel. <laughs> right. right. So I've had years to think about my drinking and get to a place. And, and so when I finally admitted where I was, I just wanted my husband to be relieved. Like, Oh, it's all going to be better now. But he was scared to death because it was news to him. Um, and the only way you get that trust back is through time, you yeah. know, time and good behavior and making the right decisions one day at a time kind of thing. Um, and then the rest of it, he found out when he read my book and no one reads my books before, except for my editor and agent before they're done and bound. So he didn't read it until it was in galley form. And it was a lot of new information for him. How did revealing that 
in in that way feel for you? Scary. Oh God, I, I can't imagine the stakes are so oh. high. <laughs> well, it's not just that. Like it wasn't that I thought he'd leave me or anything. I just, uh, for me, I can have people angry with me, but when people are disappointed in me, mm. I can't handle it. And this was a lot, and I hate being wrong and I hate making mistakes. And I don't like looking anything less than 100% competent. And all of the things my husband was finding out about me were really unattractive. And, you know, that was really frightening. You know, is he going to think of me as, you know, I, one of the things he, he loves about me is that I am competent and I can make just about anything work and I can make my way throughout the world and, and figure out how to make things work. And yet I couldn't solve that on my own. And is that weakness going to change how he feels about me? Mm. So it helped that there was some time between when he found that stuff out and when I first got sober. Cause yeah, I, yeah. but, Experience but still it to was build trust and, and. Yeah. Well, and, and at that point I thought we, you know, we should at that point have pretty much known everything about each other. And yet here's a whole chapter. He didn't know anything about Well, at least he didn't know much about it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Here you go, my love. Here's all the secrets. But, but on the other hand, secrets are what got me in trouble in the first place, especially with my own, you know, growing up. Um, So secrets are just don't have much of a place in our house as much as possible. Um, because that just, again, gets in the way of um, of being able to support each other the way we need to. How do you kind of support yourself when you feel like you want to keep a secret or if you feel like there's something that you're like, I don't want to, mm, I don't, this feels vulnerable or this feels like, mm-hmm. like, how do you kind of support yourself through the discomfort of, of getting honest under like, mm-hmm. you know, completely? Oh, I do everything through writing. So like, and even if it's something that, you know, I have, I write everything out. Um, I write, I don't like journal journal, but I just write. And sometimes I'll write entire essays about stuff that I have absolutely no intention for anyone to see anytime soon. Um, But it, that's how I process. That is, um, you know, I, I'm currently working on a book proposal and it is a massive pain in the ass. It is a huge, a ton of work for something that may not even sell, right? I may not even be able to sell this to my publisher, but writing that whole proposal is what organizes the thoughts in my brain and helps me understand what it is I have in terms mm. of a project. Um, so, so, some of that writing just goes into a folder, you know, and never may never come back out. And that's fine, but that's how I process. No, I love that. And, and yeah. And it, you know, if there's not someone I can talk to about it, which doesn't tend to be the case because I have a lot of people I really trust. I happen to have two of the best friends in the entire world and I really could tell them anything and I trust them 100%. Um, but if I feel like it's not something I really want to say out loud, then it just goes into the writing. Yeah. I mean, that's, I definitely relate to that. Like for me, it's songs. And it's interesting what you say about kind of a book proposal in terms of organizing thought. Cause right now I'm mm-hmm. trying to shop a, a record or, or songs that will eventually make up a record, but I'm not quite sure what it's about yet. Cause like they kind of right. have to tell me. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very kind of affirming to be like, Oh, like it's all there. It's just a question yeah. of kind of organizing it in a way that like allows the thing to be itself almost. Well, and I've written entire proposals that have taken weeks and weeks and weeks, maybe months to write and that didn't sell, but a section of it ended up being a chapter in a later thing. So it's all worth it. All of that, you know, hashing through what you have and figuring out 
what its place is in the context of other stuff um, is really, it's all valid work. Like there isn't ever a time when I sat down and wrote and thought, well, that was a waste of time because yeah. it's, and there are times when I, I text my two best friends and I say, cause they're also both writers and I text them and I'm like, okay, that was a lot of writing in circles. And they always say it's not wasted time. And it never, ever is. It really, it never, ever is. So yeah. that's, that's, um, and as you know, as a, as a musician, I was just interview. I just interviewed a musician about this. Actually, is seeing the arc of the whole thing can't happen until all this stuff is there. So I often, it, it, what's so hard about writing nonfiction book proposals is that you have to present a sample chapter, chapter summaries, like with the chapters in the right order and everything, and have done enough of the research to be able to present that book proposal and its place in the marketplace and you know, all that sort of other stuff. So in, the, in a sense, you're doing most of the work of writing the book up front so that you can know what you even have in the first place. Yeah. So there's just a lot of time when you're like, why am I doing this now? It just feels so, but it, it always ends up being useful. Which is really funny because like on the music side, it's like, what feeling is this? And must I express it in this way at this time? <laughs> <laughs> it's like so much more like esoteric. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, and, um, yeah. My son is actually, my younger son is a musician and he does mostly digital music production. Although he's, I, he just got his first mandolin day before yesterday and he's wow. now having mandolin. Um, so it's mostly keyboard and, and, um, and electric and acoustic guitar. Uh, but he's put together his first like album, like a thing that's a cohesive story. And as a writer, it's fascinating to me to watch a musician try to figure out how all the pieces go together in a narrative, in a musical narrative. Um, it's, it's just a different, and he also writes so we can sort of talk about it on that level, but it's been so beautiful to watch him compose and craft and put together and, and realize how similar it is to me writing a book as it is to him putting together an album. It's really just, it's so wonderful. What I mean, that's the cool share. thing about getting to be a parent. Yeah. It's really fun. Oh man, that sounds like, like what a beautiful thing to watch this person that you love and that you made, like make something of their own. That's really like, that you can be like, wow, <laughs> like, yeah. you're so magical. <laughs> well, it's also been fun to a lot of, I, I talk about this a lot in, um, when I, pe people ask me about parenting stuff and my big advice is to take, attempt to come up with some genuine interest in what your kids are interested in. Because for example, last night we were watching, um, we have a couple of favorite music theory, YouTube artists. Um, um, the, the big ones, we were watching a 12 tone video last night and he was singing, he has a new one that's out um, about why Bohemian Rhapsody changed music. And then um, we have Adam Neely, who's a, a graduate of Berkeley and has a band called Sungazer. He's a bassist, a jazz bassist, a jazz slash EDM bassist. And so we watched these music videos, these music theory videos together. And if you had told me that in my 50s, I would be studying music theory with my kid in this fashion, yeah, I never too. would have believed you. <laughs> but it's been so much fun. And, and the ability to sort of learn all of this new stuff with my kid and watch him surpass me in terms of talents and knowledge is, is amazing. It's so much fun. And it's beautiful to kind of watch you talk about it because you do look genuinely kind of thrilled by at the prospect, yeah. which is really nice. I mean, it's I cool. think 
Yeah, like that's my part of my journey as a musician is like an effort to like win my dad's love because that's always what we bonded (laughs) over. And like, I'm not mad at it. Like that's we we cannot talk about feelings, but we can definitely talk about music and it works. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's great. Well, because with my other son, my other my older son is an economist and he so every once in a while I'm like, is it possible for you to explain what your what your paper is about right now? And he's like, is it possible for me to explain this theory to you? Okay, well, and then he'll make some analogy with like fruit or something, you know, and it, it, it's his knowledge of economics and, and ability to explain it to me right now is just, it's, we're not there. But <laughs> the music theory stuff, I can still wrap my, my brain around that. The math that goes into the economics is a little bit beyond me. So confounding. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it is right now. Um, so we wanted to be sensitive to the fact that you're a respected author and educator. <laughs> so we support you going as shallow or deep into this part of the conversation as you feel comfortable. But one of our kind of anchor questions on sober sex is what are the first messages that you received around sex or sexuality when you were growing up? I Here's the thing about growing up with some trauma in your early childhood is there's a lot I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I, the messages, I don't remember there very specifically being a lot of messages. I do remember the car trip, a, a car ride with, I think my mom, where I realized we were going to have one of those, you know, sex talks. And I remember wanting to just leap out of the car. And, <laughs> Moving um, I didn't, it wasn't that I, you know, I, I don't think that there was, a lot of shame around it. I don't, it, there's not that kind of like trauma and I don't have sexual trauma myself. Um, it was just sort of there, but we didn't talk about it a ton. I remember there was a, um, there was a school, my school sent out a thing saying that there was going to be a special on like one of those science shows on PBS about sex. And I remember that we had to watch it all together as a family, but we just didn't, it wasn't a conversation that we had a lot. It was something, and it certainly wasn't something that was um, out there. One of my friends now is Peggy Orenstein, who's written two brilliant books. Huge fan. Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex. Huge fan of Peggy Orenstein. And what's funny about what I do, especially with the recovery stuff and raising kids uh, around substance use prevention is that the sex talk and the drug and alcohol talk, these are scary, scary topics. And yeah, for everybody, for the kids and for yeah. the parents, just to be like, yeah. this is getting real. Exactly. <laughs> and the drug and alcohol talk, I say this all the time, that it gets easier the more you have it. And I can't help but think the sex talk does too, but that wasn't my experience. We just didn't have it a lot. So, yeah. So where did you end up getting your information? You know, I read a lot, I guess. Um, I remember uh, one of my relatives had a hidden copy of um, The Joy of Sex, and I read that when I was a young teenager. I, you know, would sneak it and read it. Um, I had a, I, my mom had a copies of Our Bodies Ourselves. Very, I have such vivid memories of that book, and that just being so, it was so amazing to me how forthright that book was. Um, I'm so grateful now for some of the resources. It's really scary, the resources, I say resources, the exposure that a lot of kids get today um, to sex. And um, there's a really, Adam Savage, one of the Mythbusters, um, he he had did a great moth, uh, an episode of The Moth, 
where he talked about how he explained sex and the internet and well porn to his twin boys and he essentially said you the one thing you have to really understand is that the internet hates women and <laughs> understanding how women are portrayed in porn especially porn on the internet is that in general the internet hates women so if you're expecting your image of women to be you know so i think there's there's a lot of that fear but i'm also so grateful because as someone who buys a lot of books, I just bought a whole ton of books, gave them to my kid um, on everything from being straight, being gay, being trans, all that stuff is there and generally pretty good quality. Um, and access to it is less limited than it was when I was little. But also my mom, very specific, I, re I was a precocious reader. And so my mom told the librarian to never, ever limit what I'm allowed to read at the library and not keep me in the kids section or whatever, um, that I was allowed to read whatever I could read. And that's been really valuable to me too. Amazing. Yeah. Because again, it sounds like it's it's very much about kind of empowering young people to make yeah. good choices and like, how can they make good choices if they're never allowed to make choices? <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I do clearly, I worry about where kids are getting their, um, their information about what's the difference between reality and fantasy in terms of, you know, what internet sex looks like versus, you know, what like real people and women and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that at least among the parents of my age, that we feel a little more empowered to talk about, um, other resources other than like just our own experience, because there's so many things that kids are allowed to talk about now and to be that that would have been impossible when I was younger. My, I was talking to my younger son about how many kids in his class are like openly gay or openly trans. And he was like having to count on two hands. And I was like, it blew my mind because that was just not even, uh, that was so not happening when I was in high school or even when I first started teaching high school. It was just not a thing. So I'm so grateful that kids get to explore. Um, there are just more options for them to be what they want to be and be with who they want to be with and love who they want to love. Yeah. And I think even that part of the conversation of like separating like gender and sexuality and body from the, like it, it requires a conversation, you know, and it requires some education around. And, and it's so cool that like, the resources are there to, for those conversations to allow the possibility of, as you say, self-expression and like yeah. supporting friends, you know, like it creates a community, um, ideally. <laughs> ideally, yeah. And, and so in terms of personal experience, like how did the, how did it unfold from there? Like how did alcoholism enter the picture? Because it sounds like, you know, you've been in a, in, in a relationship with the same person for a really mm -hmm. long time. And well, I actually didn't. Um, so I was scared to death of alcohol and what it did to people when I, because of the example I was shown when I was young, um, both of immediate and extended family. Um, so I, st I was one of those people who ran as far away as possible from it and b didn't really drink much at all when I was in high school, college. I became a drug and alcohol peer counselor in college. I was always the designated driver. And it wasn't until I had kids and I was in my 40s that it started to sneak up on me. And part of that, there are a lot of reasons for that. And for me, a lot of it was um, some initial boredom when I was first home with little, I was home with little, little, little kids. And then some of it was habit that just built on habit and built on habit and built on habit. And, you know, you, you drink when you cook and that sort of stuff. So I, 
I am, I thought it was a really, I thought it was a unique story. And then I started going to recovery and I realized this is actually not that unusual of a story is that I didn't really have a problem until I was in my forties. And then I started having a problem over about, you know, like, I think I was in the weeds for probably a good eight years, six to eight years, something like that. Um, and that, you know, I think that's a very different experience than coming of age sexually while you're drinking, because I know lots of people who talk about their worst drinking years being during high school and college and having no sense of personal boundaries or whatever. And that is so frightening to me. Um, I I got very lucky and that that was not a part of my story. No, that's awesome. Like I got sober when I was 20. (laughs) So I'm like, if everything kind of had to be like adult it's very difficult to differentiate like what is kind of learning how to be a human being from learning how to be in recovery because it's all so spastic and kind of woven tightly together and so it's interesting that you kind of actually did have differentiated experiences of like Mm -hmm. being a sober adult being a drinking adult (laughs) then being adult in recovery yeah yeah well, and I taught for five years, I taught in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. And so many of the kids there um, hadn't had the opportunity to figure out in sobriety who they are, what they want sexually, who they are sexually, what they need sexually, and where their boundaries are because their judgment has been muddled by substances. And it's for a lot of kids, there's the, the interesting thing about getting sober as an adolescent, and by the way, 20s still counts as adolescent. Adolescence is over <laughs> till the early to mid-20s. Our brains aren't done developing um, from a frontal lobe perspective till our early to mid-20s. Uh, there's a lot of reconstruction that has to happen and a lot of catching up. There are a lot of adolescents who get emotionally, developmentally arrested in when they really start using and then have to to figure things out later. And that's why recovery in adolescence looks a little different. Often, often involves more relapse, you know, stuff like that. It's just different. Their brains aren't finished developing yet. So I think having some patience for that process, especially when you're dealing with young adults who are newly in recovery is really important. Yeah. I'm so curious. It's a very different world. Like what are some of the other differences of kind of that you have observed in, in watching like super young people get, get clean or sober? Um, so there's here a way of talking about it is this, is that we have, um, one of my dreams is to open a recovery high school. Amazing. And, um, and when I say recovery high school, what I don't mean is a sober high school. What I mean is a recovery high school. There's a wonderful series, uh, that was on MTV called 16 and in recovery. And it was set at, it was, it was a documentary series based at North shore recovery high school in Massachusetts. And, If you relapse, you don't get kicked out. You get helped through that process of the relapse because kids, especially, you know, adolescents in recovery, their frontal lobe, the part of their brain that doesn't make, it doesn't do sort of the adulting stuff, isn't fully mature yet, isn't fully hooked up to the rest of the brain yet. So if we're going to expect, we can't expect adolescents to make fully adult decisions when they're sober. So when they're drug seeking or when they're not sober, um, those that decision-making process is just really fouled up and it's not had the opportunity to develop at the same rate as someone who's not been using. And then there's other, you know, 
specific stuff. Like we know, for example, that the hippocampuses of kids who use um, weed on a chronic basis, pun intended, uh, have smaller <laughs> hippocampuses than kids who don't, that there's thinning in the prefrontal cortex, that kind of stuff. So we know it has a very real effect on the brain. But we also know in terms of development, it either postpones or makes it so that things can't happen in the sequence that they're supposed to happen during this really important period of plasticity in the brain during adolescence. And the problem is, is that when the door closes on that period of plasticity in the early to mid 20s, there's no going back. That development either happens or it doesn't. There's no going back and doing any remediation because that period of development closes. Um, so I think there's a lot, that's why when I talk about, um, substance use prevention, you know, you adults go out and do what you want to do, have a healthy relationship with substances. Think a lot about, about your relationship with substances, evaluate that relationship. But when I talk about the dangers of substance use and the brain, I'm talking about adolescents and it's a very different picture for adolescents than it is, than kids, than it is for adults, fully yeah. grown, developed adults. It's it's really like resonating when you say that, because like, you know, in, I think in a lot of ways and and one of the other co-hosts also um, got sober when she was like 21, is that like, because my use was very brief, but very intense, I only used for a couple of years <laughs> and then like it was arrested. But right. um, <laughs> But all of the the this the like integrating feelings into um, decision making and not kind of getting stuck in like right. disassociation or fight or flight like in a bit, a bit like you know the smallest kind of like embodied anxiety like yeah oh my god it's it's taken literally the last fifteen years to kind of learn how to like be present and compassionate with the process as opposed to just like yeah. shut down, disassociate, run away. And so well, and that's an, that's an important part of teaching kids about their own brains too. So if like a kid knows that, for example, adolescents have lower baseline levels of dopamine than little kids and adults. So when they're bored, when they feel bored, when they feel a lack of motivation, it's not because they're broken. It's because they have a lower mm. baseline level of dopamine than children and adults. Or when you think about a lot of people like to say, oh, kids can't, adolescents can't think about the consequences of their actions. That's not true at all. They're actually very, very good at looking at a decision and knowing what the consequences of those actions might be. But what they do, uh, many adolescents weigh the possible positive consequences for them, the possible positive benefits for them more then they weigh the possible negative um, outcomes. So it's not that they don't know they're there. They're just, they're weighing, their mechanism for making that decision isn't quite fully formed yet. So, the you know, my main advice always to adults who get frustrated with teenagers, I mean, they're some of my favorite people, but adults who get frustrated with teenagers just look right between their eyes and remember that the part of their brain right between their eyes is not fully hooked up to the lower brain yet. And there's all kinds of reasons. There's all, that's the reason that there's a whole chapter in the addiction inoculation about what we're talking about when we talk about an adolescent brain. It's just not fully hooked up yet. So recovery is going to look different. Um, substances react differently in kids than they do in adults, including alcohol. Um, it does things to the brain that it doesn't do to the uh, adult brain. It's something that might be mild or moderate risk in an adult brain can be moderate to high risk in a, in a young brain. It's, they're just two different things, two yeah. very different things. And that's so helpful too, because it a, kind of 
creates a space of compassion for this person who is literally incapable of like making the right choice or taking the right action. And also like, I'm sure in, in conversations as a parent to kids about the potential of potential consequences of, of drinking and using, like to have the, the, the information beyond like it's potentially dangerous, but like, here's why specifically is <laughs> a wonderful yeah. tool, you know? And that's what we know works. Scared straight doesn't work. Just say no doesn't work. What works is here's the information about your brain, about what drugs and alcohol can do to your brain, especially given that it's not fully formed. Here's what we know statistically. Like if I have a clear and consistent message of no, not until it's legal for you, you are far less likely to have alcohol use disorder during your lifetime or substance use disorder during your lifetime. And if I do anything other than what the evidence shows to be in your best interest, then I'm either being selfish, being lazy, wanting to be your friend more than I'm wanting to be your parent, Mm -hmm. or just not caring that the evidence says that I can't let you have sips. I can't let you have your own glass of wine because if I do that, especially given our family genetics, you're a lot more likely to have substance use disorder when you get older. Um, and that's, that's why my whole entire ethos around talking to adolescents is it's all about the, because it's all about the, here's why I'm doing this and what my goals are as a parent. And, you know, my kids are used to me explaining stuff, but you know, for a lot of kids, it can come as a surprise and be actually really edifying when we start explaining things to them because they're like, wait a second, you trust me to be able to understand the reasoning behind <laughs> what you're doing? Yeah, because doesn't work very well. Because yeah. I said so definitely yeah. is a nightmare. No, I mean, again, like this kind of offer of, op- of autonomy <laughs> is a yeah. beautiful thing, especially I think for like young addicts who like, you know, they talk a lot about the how addiction or, or alcoholism is related to ego. <laughs> mm-hmm. idea of like being kind of entrusted with the keys to the kingdom, which is the information necessary yeah. to make the right decision, the quote unquote right decision, or at least to know the consequences in a different way. Right. Like, yeah, helpful. it was really interesting trying to write after having written gift of failure, which is about giving your kids lots of autonomy, autonomy and abilities to feel comp- opportunities, to feel competent, then hearing, reading in the literature that, you know, the period of real risk for kids initiating drugs and alcohol is like during the summer when they're teenagers and they're only hanging out with other teenagers and there's no adults around. It's like, okay, well then what are our options? Dear teen, you are never, ever allowed to hang out with other teenagers when there are no adults present. <laughs> well, because no, that's <laughs> That'll stupid. That'll go over you great. Do that. <laughs> you know, well, not only that, it, the whole purpose of adolescence is to get kids, to push kids towards, you know, becoming who they are. Um, so, you know, as my husband likes to say, we could prevent most melanoma if we never let our kids go outside, but that's not going to work either. So finding that happy medium where your kids know that you have trust in them to make good decisions, that you um, believe in them, that you believe in their competence and their their potential to be competent adults, um, and then giving them as much um, freedom, autonomy as their uh, as sense would dictate within that context. You know, we can't always, you know, give kids total freedom um, but I, I would always err on the side of um, giving them more autonomy rather than less. That's, you know, my general stance on these things. That's beautiful. I mean, and, and obviously you did a tremendous amount of research to write this book, but like, I wonder if it changed your own relationship 
with like your recovery or like what you know about your brain, even though you're, you weren't an, an adolescent when you got sober. Yeah. Well, actually what's interesting, both of the books really go into brain development, but I can tell you right now that, um, I'm raising my two children very differently. Um, based on what I learned from writing the addiction inoculation. My 23-year-old was allowed sips. I even admitted in the book that I, I put um, some wine on his tongue when he was a baby because someone had sent us a really nice bottle of wine. Um, and my younger son now, now knowing what I know now, my younger son is not allowed sips, not allowed his own alcohol at the table um, because he's not 21. And 21 is just a proxy for until our brains are done developing. Like if, if, an, eighth, eighth, if an eighth grader, if a 13-year-old has um, his first taste of drugs or alcohol, he has about a 50% chance of having substance use disorder during his lifetime. But if we can get that number, if we can get them to 18, it goes down to like 17%. And if we can get them down to 21, it goes down to 10%. Wow. And 10% is what it is in the general population. So the, the order of the day is delay, delay, delay. And statistically speaking, the older a kid is, the less likely they're ha less likely they are to experience substance use disorder during their lifetime. And parents with a clear and consistent message of no, not until it is legal for you, have kids with much lower levels of substance use disorder, whereas permissive parents have kids with much higher levels of substance use disorder during their lifetime. Wow. I mean, and to be armed with the facts is like <laughs> incredible power. Um, so, you know, to, again, do a graceful sober sex pivot. Um, in addition to being a guest on many illustrious podcasts, including Sober Sex, <laughs> you also <laughs> co-host a podcast called Hashtag M Writing. Do you include the hashtag yeah. when you follow it? Okay. Hashtag we do. Yeah. Hashtag M Writing. Yeah. <laughs> so you can find it on the internet about craft, creativity, and productivity for writers of all genres. Uh, and I think you guys just had your surpassed your 300th episode. We put yesterday, I'm sorry, when we're, when we're recording this, it was yesterday. We hit, we posted our 300th episode and we've never skipped a week and we've never run, done a rerun. So for us, you know, we said we would keep doing this for as long as we're helpful to other writers. I host it with two other best-selling authors, a best-selling romance novelist. She has 21 best-selling novels and then my other co-host is KJ Dillon. Sorry, that's Serena Bowen. And then my other co-host is KJ Delantonia. And she was a New York Times bestseller with her book, The Chicken Sisters. So we figure if we can, as long as we can be helpful to other writers, we'll keep going. And it's been so much fun. I mean, it really, like I've listened to a few episodes in preparation and it's now on my roster of things I listen to. Oh, because good. I always listen to something, but just like the, I really liked your production and the way that you're like, it's not too clean and kind of too produced. Right. It's very like spontaneous and, and real. And also the willingness to talk about like the business side of things of like how to, you know, read a bank statement from your publisher and because like that's the stuff that no one talks about that is really, really helpful. I think for all kinds of creators. Um, that's what's been great is Serena is actually has a background in economics. She was a, she worked on wall street. And so when it comes to, and she's a master of the business end of things. And so, yeah, no one talks about royalty statements and how to read them or how much of a cut X gets. And should you be paying someone to read your manuscript who claims to be an agent, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we talk about money because that's the only way we're going to be as helpful as possible. So yeah, we just sort of, we sort of go there. It's really fun. And what we found is that we get to, we've gotten to interview all kinds of like superstar writers like David Sedaris and stuff like that. But it's the 
episodes that we publish about, you know, the nuts and bolts of like, how do you get those freelance jobs or how do you query an agent that get the most listens? So we, we, we do get to interview some pretty cool people, but mostly we stick with just the nuts and bolts of getting the work done. That's beautiful. I mean, just because again, like it's kind of a rare jewel of a resource. So writers or creators, check it out. It's fantastic. Um, and, you know, in terms of like, your own creativity or craft or productivity. You know, you're, you mentioned that you're, you're writing another book right now. Like what is supporting you in those things today? Those two, well, my co-hosts are my two best friends and we text each other all day long. We have a, a shorthand for when we've gotten the words done for the day. We text each other the word sticker. Um, we're <laughs> each other, it, because that means we get to stick a little, a little sticker in. <laughs> It's like a little gold star in our calendar. Um, we're each other's sort of accountability. We accountability friends. Um, I can say to them, look, you know, I, this isn't an official deadline, but I would like to have this into my agent by January 20th. And they'll, they'll, they'll text and say, so how's that going? Are you going to have it ready? Um, and I trust them and I trust their judgment. So those two, and then my husband, uh, you know, we we have a very 50-50 relationship and and my work is as important as his work which is really hard cuz he's out there he'll leave the house in the morning to like go say some save someone's life and i'm yeah. you know <laughs> going to stay home and hope i can bang out an outline for a chapter but um but being you know he gives so much respect to what i do and um yeah it's it's a good relationship it's a i'm so you know people say that the successful relationships are the ones where both of the people feel like they're the ones who got lucky. Like I definitely feel like I'm the one who got lucky. And he regularly tells me that he feels like he's the one who got lucky. So I think the the seeds of a good relationship are there. That's beautiful. I mean, I, I especially kind of through this COVID season, <laughs> COVID season, that feeling of like having somebody who can really pick up your slack and like that it's mutual mm. is like such a, such a gift. And it really sounds like you're cultivating that. And, and it's a beautiful too, that like when you talk about how you, you feel supported in these things, right? Creativity mm -hmm. or craft or productivity that it's actually. Like, and I have people. to add, I have to add my sobriety. So, you know, coming back around to sober sex, like it is not that unusual for him to just walk up and say, I'm just so grateful to you um, that you got sober because we wouldn't have this. And that's very clear. Like we would have ended up divorced. We, this, the life we have that we love could not exist in the con in the context of my continuing to, to drink the way I was drinking. So he, you know, he is very supportive in that he doesn't, we don't keep open alcohol in the house because of that. He's very, very careful about the things he puts in my path that can either lead to my success or to my failure. And, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I don't, it would be, I think much harder to get people who have to get sober with a, an, a less than supportive partner. I, I just, I don't know how you do it. It's really hard. Totally. I mean, that's, has not been my experience either, but like, yeah, it's, and it's wonderful too, to have somebody in your life, especially if he doesn't sound like he's in recovery. No. And he, he's, I, I used to say he drinks like a normal person, but you know, I hate that everybody <laughs> gets mad when I say that. No, he can have a drink and pour whatever he doesn't want out or, you know, so he gets like singles or, or single beers or, you know, whatever, and brings the one home and whatever he does drink, he, he pours out and, you know, and the cool thing for me is that's not only helpful for me so that my brain isn't thinking there's wine in the refrigerator, you know, but 
my children also see what a supportive relationship looks like. And they know why he drinks the way he drinks, which is in, you know, he likes to have a beer every once in a while. And yet he's also making sure that that's not triggering for me. And that is part of what a supportive relationship is all about. Yeah. Yeah. And that you can communicate around it, like with respect yep. as opposed to kind of walking on eggshells or like feeling fear, you know, that it's, it's seen as a support yep. mechanism as opposed to like a, a, a worst case scenario, right. <laughs> you know, right. prevention system. Yeah. I mean, um, and so how is your process or your practice, like, you know, kind of speaking of that different today than it was prior to recovery? Practice around what in particular? About, about, parenting I, um, I was thinking mostly writing about your kind of creative practice. Oh, um, I, <laughs> so when I, I, when I first was re when I was at the end of my drinking, I was trying to write full time and teach full time. And yeah, it was really bad. <laughs> and and <laughs> I learned, I learned and drink full time. And I learned really early on to never, ever hit publish or send on an email when I was drinking. So I had a big drafts folder often. Um, and I changed and I used to do all of my writing um, when I got home from teaching school. So from like three until I had to start getting dinner ready and then after dinner. But that was also when I was drinking the most. So there was a lot of like having to do the first drunk write and then do the sober edit afterwards. And what I've found now is it's all a sober process. So I'm clearer, I'm more organized, my brain actually works. Um, it's, it's easier now because I don't have to hold things in the draft folder. I don't have to make sure that I've got like a big piece of tape over the edit enter button so that I <laughs> hit send or something like that. You know, there's, I used to have fail safes to make sure that I didn't screw up and send an email when I shouldn't have or send a draft when I shouldn't have. Um, and that just isn't a part of my process anymore. Yeah. Some writers tell me that, you know, they changed the time of day that they write. Like David Sedaris used to drink and write at the same time. Um, and that was always in the evening. And so he changed his writing time to the morning just to get around it so that it wasn't triggering for him. And, you know, that's, it hasn't really been much of a problem for me. Um, mainly because I left teaching full-time about the same time I became a serious, like I was really a full-time writer. So yeah, no, but, but it's, it's become an easier process. Well, and it sounds like also, and maybe this is coincidental and maybe it's kind of intentional, but the idea of being able to um, make discerning choices about like, you can, in fact, you cannot eat as a sober person, you cannot do it all. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> perhaps this is why. I wrote a blog post about this kind of, I think it called something's got to give because I could either drink or write but I could not do both. And especially when, after I sold my first book and it was sold to a lot of fanfare and there was a big auction for it and there was a, it was a big deal and I got a lot of money for it. And I was going to, I was going to fuck it up. And I had to, something had to give and either the book was going to suck and be a total failure and, or, you know, I was and protecting my drinking had been the name of the day until I got to that point where I was like, look, you're being handed this massive opportunity. And here's, this is a breaking point. And it was right then, right after I sold the book that I got sober, thanks to my dad, who actually was the person who really called me on it and was sort of the last piece of my particular puzzle. He said, um, I got my last drunk was my mom's birthday, actually, not because <laughs> I got drunk at her birthday party. 
Um, and he came up the next morning and he said, you know, I know what an alcoholic looks like and you're an alcoholic and you need help. And that I was ready at that point. So that was June 7th of 2013, right after I sold the gift of failure. Well, happy eight and a half years, <laughs> almost yeah. exactly. Eight yeah. year, eight and a half years and 13 yeah. days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so kind of speaking of time, we are relatively new to 2022. Do you have any themes or intentions that you're cultivating this year? Yeah, actually I do. The listeners can't see it, but my new favorite thing is this. There's a calendar right behind my head and it's called the Everyday Calendar by Simone. And I'm going to say her name wrong, but it's spelled G-E-I-R-T-Z. She makes, she's known for making useless robots on uh, YouTube. She's wonderful. It's very Um, beautiful. she, (laughs) She made this calendar. So every single day you press the button and it lights up the day. And for her, it was because she wanted to know, she wanted to meditate every day and she didn't want to skip a day. And so she was trying to create a new habit. And for me, I, my new thing is every single morning I set some intention, some goal for the day does not have to be work. uh, My my parents were here recently and spending time with my parents was my goal and my intention. And I have a kid who's going off to college in the fall. And so spending good time with him sometimes is my goal or, um, you know, a home project or, or writing, getting my words done. And so every day I just, at the bottom of the calendar, um, on that particular day, I just write what my goal is. And it doesn't have to be anything massive. It can be replacing that outlet that I've been putting off replacing for six months. Um, and I, when I do it, I get to turn on the little light and make myself feel happy. And, and that's having a daily intention that isn't, some massive, like, I must write 3,000 words today or I'm a total failure. Um, it's been really great for me to have a, just a very personal intention for every single day. So the intention for the year is intention, which yeah, seems like a bit meta, but also like I'm looking yeah. at this very kind of sculptural, viscerally pleasing calendar behind you. And it seems <laughs> like a, like even to be able to con- kind of consider like what what am I doing today is a really beautiful yeah. uh, yeah. Beautiful well, and also leaving yourself room for the fact that like, for example, yesterday, um, my goal was threatened by the fact that my son called. He's like, I have COVID symptoms. I think you need to come and pick me up at school. And I did. And he tested and he was negative, but he still wasn't feeling good. And, you know, there's a big chunk of the day that all of a sudden disappears and it wrecked some afternoon plans I had. Um, but that's okay because my goal was a pretty manageable goal for the day. And, and it, you know, I don't want my work to subsume my life. I want my work and my personal life to, to coexist in a peaceful way. And, and this allows me to do that. Yeah. It's, it doesn't feel very kind of like fascist, <laughs> like you're not being kind of cruel with yourself. Um, and that, that's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, so thus we enter the lightning round, which is not actually okay. that fast ever. <laughs> so take your time. Um, okay. uh, what is your favorite word today? Oh, I guess I hate to say it because we were on the intention thing, but I think intention was a big one for me today. I like that. Just I mean, today. I change my words a lot. I'm a real word nerd and I'm a big that. etymology nerd. So I, I like to know what words mean. My word of the year uh, that I set sort of the beginning of the year was evaluate because evaluate mm-hmm. sort of gets at what is valuable to you. Like in thinking about what things I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do and what people want me to do and what I, you know, that sort of stuff. What, what has value to me that, cause that's where the word comes from is the process of figuring out or creating or uh, evaluating 
how much value something has. Sorry to use the word to explain the word, but yeah, I'm a word nerd. Love it. Love it very much. Um, what turns you on, whatever that means for you? Oh, for competence, like seriously, like whether that's me being competent in something I'm doing and feeling really good about that or watching someone else be really good at what they do. And, and those, especially when they find just joy in it. Oh, that's right there. Yeah. That is a sweet spot for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. wow, you are deft. <laughs> yeah. Like a beautiful thing. And if they don't have to be perfect, but if, man, if they are finding joy in, in mastery, oh, that, I love that. Fantastic. Um, what is your morning routine? I actually, I'm a, not a morning person. So I wake up later than my spouse, um, but he brings the coffee to the bedside for me. And I lay there with my three dogs and I do my little sort of like, when my brain's not completely awake yet, but kind of sort of awake, it tends to be a little freer and it lets me be really creative. And I tend to have some of my best ideas in that 20 minutes between when I'm awake and when I actually get out of the bed. And I just sort of let my mind, I, it's like you unhinge it and sort of let it just sort of do that half dream-like thing. Um, and that's, that is a really important morning part of my morning routine to me is letting my brain have some freedom to yeah. figure out. Uh, yeah. I love Off that. leash time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, I love explaining. That's good. Mm-hmm. I like that. Unleash it. Um, and where can we find you on the www? Um, so everything's always at jessicalehi.com. Um, but I spend in terms of social media, I spend a ton of time on Twitter cause that's where the teachers are. Um, mm-hmm. at a certain point, I'm not sure that this is still true, but at a certain point about 10 years ago, teachers as a profession were the biggest users of Twitter. So I follow probably around 11,000 teachers on Twitter and just, I love hanging out on Twitter because they tend to be really positive and wonderful and sharing people. Um, and that's at Jess Leahy. I'm on all the other stuff too, but uh, Twitter's at Jess Leahy and Instagram is at Teacher Leahy. Lots of like wintry landscapes in Vermont and cute dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instagram, Instagram. To full disclosure, Instagram is like dogs and lots of dogs and more dogs, and then occasionally pictures of other things. <laughs> well, when you have three dogs, yeah, and yeah, one's I mean, a puppy, so yeah. Yo, any like I feel like puppy content is very high on my list of things that I'm on the <laughs> internet for. So respect, <laughs> full support. Um, you have been such a delight to talk to you today. Thank you so oh, thank much you. for your time and for your vulnerability. It's been a true joy. So. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really fun. I'm so pleased that you asked. Well, well, thank you for like reaching, like responding to my cold DM. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm, I was just thrilled when you reached out. So thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your snowy day. Oh, I will. I will. I think a nap might be in order today, which is one of my great joys in life for weekend naps. Fantastic. What is the intention for today? The intention for today is uh, three tasks that I have been putting off that drive my husband crazy because they're not done. And so in deference to making him happy today, I'm doing those three tasks and getting them done so that he doesn't have to um, worry about whether or not he should pester me about them. And, and this is why you both feel lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your time and have a wonderful, wonderful Saturday. Thank you. You too. 